And now from Acts chapter one, verses one through 14, this is our sermon passage for this morning. Hear these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Very good to be with you this morning. As Paul said today, we're beginning a new series in the book of Acts. We'll be spending the next seven weeks here as we consider the church's mission. As Paul was praying, I got a little bit nervous because when he was praying, he said, we can't, we can't understand this without Dodd's help. And I th- he said God's help. <laughs> But I heard without Dodds' help, and I had a, a, a panic attack immediately. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't say my name. <laughs> it was actually without God's help. We need his help. So I'm still calming down from that, so bear with me. <laughs> so please, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so Acts is essentially the, the second volume of a two-volume work the first of which is the Gospel of Luke, and both were written by Luke, who was a traveling co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. And as Luke writes, his first book, the Gospel of Luke, deals with what Jesus began to do and teach. And so that means that the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. And it's in the book of Acts that Jesus, the chief apostle, is himself working by the Spirit in and through his apostles. And we'll be talking about what that means for our lives and our mission as the church. So the book of Acts begins in a, in a transitional place. Jesus is about to ascend and Pentecost is about to occur, but there are 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. So what we're looking at today is actually happening 40 days after Jesus first came out of the tomb. After what we're reading today in chapter 1, there are 10 more days until Pentecost. So this, this account actually might remind us of the very beginning of 1 Kings, 
where King David is about to leave and his appointed successor and his regime are being established. Here, Jesus is ascending and his apostles and his kingdom are going to be further established. And normally, we would talk about the ascension of Jesus on Ascension Sunday, but we have decided to make a small change this year. And so instead of ending the series with Acts 1 and Acts 2, we will begin with them. So while we will celebrate Ascension Sunday in another five weeks, we will be looking at the ascension of Christ today. And just to set the expectation this morning, I'm going to be concentrating heavily on the ascension itself and, and not a verse-by-verse exposition of Acts 1. That's... It's, it's normally what I do, but, but today it, it's, I'm, I'm going to be doing something different. So let's start this way. As Paul just read from Psalm 24.3, the psalmist asks a crucial question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The, the question of who will ascend is, the, is in one sense the question of the whole Bible. It's a question that presupposes that we are in one place and God is in another. We are on earth and God is in heaven. So how can we cross over from where we are to where he is? Humanity was made for union and communion with God. We were made to have face-to-face fellowship with him and we know that we will never be fully satisfied, fully satiated, fully satisfied with anything less than that. We were made to seek God and to live in shalom with him, just as the psalmist in Psalm 24 writes. But even the question who who may ascend God's hill is is really set up by the very structure of creation itself. In Genesis 1, we we get a look at the the architecture of the world. Genesis 1, the very first verse, excuse me, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the very start, we can see that there are two realms, heaven and earth. And from what we can tell in these few opening verses, there there doesn't seem to be a boundary between them at first. The earth has no form, nor was it yet filled with anything other than darkness. But over the course of Genesis 1, we see God forming and filling and glorifying his creation in in a myriad of ways. But on day two, a very interesting thing happens. God separates the waters below from the waters above. The earth is covered with water at this point, and it's as though God reaches down to earth and pulls some of that water up to heaven with him and spreads it out and creates a barrier between heaven and earth. It's a firmament. The psalmist writes elsewhere that God stretched out the heavens like a curtain or or like a veil, as though on that second day, this, this veil of water was made in order to separate heaven and earth. And in the Bible, water regularly accompanies visions of heaven. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel describes his vision of looking up into heaven as if he's looking through a sea of crystal. In Revelation 4 and 5, John sees the 24 elders in heaven casting their crowns down on what they call a glassy sea. That's what we sing in holy, holy, holy. And so the question of ascensions becomes, can anyone ascend beyond the veil? Can anyone ascend beyond this between heaven and earth? 
Can anyone breach the veil between heaven and earth to be where God is? And there might be a hint in Genesis 1 that, that it can happen, that this actually can take place. After every day where God creates, he sees what he's made and he declares it good. God is assessing and judging his work, essentially. But that declaration is actually missing on day two. God doesn't call the barrier between heaven and earth good or bad. He renders no judgment. So I would submit to you that God did not intend for the barrier between heaven and earth to last forever. But that he intended from the beginning that heaven and earth would one day be brought back together forever in the same way that God intends to marry himself to humanity. But it begs the question, how is he going to do that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God provides hints and clues as to how he's going to break through the veil between heaven and earth and how he will create that face-to-face relationship with humanity. He does this by building earthly copies and models of heaven on earth. And when men and women are allowed to enter into these models of heaven, these sanctuaries, it gives us an understanding of how we will all enter heaven itself. These models, being, these models begin most certainly with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The garden is a model of heaven and earth. It's where God meets Adam and Eve face to face, instructs them, guards them, keeps them, feeds them, communes with them. And furthermore, in Ezekiel 28, we read that Eden was actually planted on a mountain. It's a high place with rivers that flow downhill to other parts of creation. Therefore, the Garden of Eden is truly the first holy of holies, the the place where God and mankind live together. It's a mirror of the heavenly sanctuary. So human history in Genesis, it begins on a high hill with God. But Adam and Eve are still created to ascend to a greater height. The garden isn't the highest point in Eden. A river actually arises in Eden above the garden and then flows through the garden. And because of that, we can know that Adam and Eve weren't meant to remain in the garden forever. They were meant to mature. They were meant to grow up. They were meant to to carry God's dominion out into the world, to take dominion over creation along with him and thereby ascend from the garden through the veil to the source of Eden's river. But as the story goes, they never get to do that. When Adam and Eve rebel and disobey God's word in the garden, they lose their access to this copy of heaven. They will no longer be able to ascend the mountain of the Lord as they were accustomed to. Instead, they must descend from the mountain of Eden. And God places two cherubim at the entrance of Eden with flaming swords to bar any re-entry so no one can ascend anymore. However, even after they are cast out and down east of Eden, ascension remains the destiny of the human race. God's plan doesn't change. Heaven and earth are still meant to be reunited but someone must ascend the hill and breach the veil to reestablish humanity's communion with God. The rest of the Bible is full of ascensions, full of attempts to reestablish 
humanity's place with God. After the flood, Noah tries to rebuild humanity from a mountain where he plants a vineyard. Abraham ascends to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac. Jacob has a dream about a ladder that stretches from earth up to heaven that he calls the house of God. Moses ascends to Mount Sinai to meet with God to establish a covenant. Even the sanctuary of, sanctuaries of Israel, the tabernacle and the temple were literally placed on hills. And moving into the sanctuary involved a, a symbolic ascent into heaven, into the presence of God. So every time an Israelite went to worship God at the temple, they were going up to Jerusalem, ascending to worship. That's why they sang song, psalms of ascent. The sacrificial system itself was a system of ascensions as the smoke of sacrifices would rise, would go up to God. So when Jesus meets with the disciples even, it's in the upper room. All of these, each one of these is a, is a reminiscence. It's a small, sometimes symbolic, but always partial recovery of Adam and Eve's original hill, of Adam and Eve's original place with God. Even inside the temple itself was a bluish veil meant to mimic the firmament meant to mimic the boundary between heaven and earth, and it was covered with two cherubim still barring entrance. No one can breach that veil. No one could breach that veil very long without dying. And the question remained, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? According to Psalm 24, it is he who has clean hands, a pure heart, a faithful spirit, and true speech. The perfect man. And that man, pure, clean, faithful, and true, is Jesus. As we've studied throughout Mark, we've seen that Jesus isn't just a good teacher or a powerful rebel upstart. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. The Lamb without blemish who comes to win a victory over sin, death, and hell through the giving of his own life in order to lead a band of captives back through that veil and onto the highest hill of heaven into communion of God. It is he, it is Jesus, who has come to reunite heaven and earth. Now in our text today, it might seem strange that after all the events of Christ's death and resurrection that Jesus is again leaving his apostles, leaving the scene. But this is exactly where we see the significance of the ascension. The ascension is not a strange epilogue to the earthly ministry of Christ. It is the completion of his earthly ministry. The point where it reaches its intended goal. See, the cross is just the first stage of Jesus' return to the Father. The resurrection is the second stage. And Jesus' resurrection comes to its climax in his ascension and in the gift of the Spirit. In his ascension, Jesus, as the last Adam, is elevated beyond the garden, beyond even the peak of Eden, beyond the clouds, beyond the firmament, through the veil, all the way to the right hand of the Father in the highest heaven. See, what Jesus does in his ascension is he, he ascends as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He, he ascends as a king who takes a throne that is higher than Solomon's. 
as a prophet who is, uh, who is caught up in a heaven more gloriously than Elijah. Jesus' ascension isn't a religious event with a spiritual significance. It fulfills the human, the original human vocation to become God's prince, ruling God's universe. It's the foundation of the gospel. Jesus is king, and in the ascension, King Jesus goes to his throne to rule over all creation. Let's look at Daniel 7 again just to remind us. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, when Jesus ascended, he received something. He got something. He received dominion, glory, and a kingdom. He received everything that his perfect sacrifice bought. And he sat down on the throne. And, he, and really, here's the thing that, that blows my mind every time I think about it. In Christ, God became man. And in the ascension, he stayed man. See, it's not his spirit that sits in the throne. It's not his force ghost that is in heaven. There is a fully human, fully God Jesus sitting on the heavenly throne right now. A human being who has breached the division between heaven and earth. And let me tell you why this is so important for us. Because where Jesus is, where Jesus is, is where we are too. For those in union with him by faith, his ascension is our ascension. Because Christ has penetrated the highest heaven, we too have gained access to the Father and to that holy hill. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he, also, he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. See, when Jesus ascends, he doesn't, he doesn't go alone. <laughs> he takes us with him as his captives, as his slaves to righteousness. It's, a, it's Christ's ascension that is the precursor for the work of the Spirit. As he ascends, he gives the gifts of the Spirit and he establishes those gifts in the form of the church. In an interesting way, he, he takes his body to heaven and yet he creates his body on earth. And why is that important? Let's listen to Paul again in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ." 
See, it's because of the ascension that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's because of the ascension that we can be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I I don't know what all the spiritual blessings are. I don't know what all they are, but I know that because Christ is enthroned, it says here that he shares all of them with us, with his people. And it's him, it's in him that all things in heaven and earth will be united. So a, a new stage of Christ's work is made possible as he ascends. And in ascending, the Spirit's work is opened up in a way that it, that it never was before. It's understandable that the disciples and apostles could have seen losing Jesus as a loss of power, as a real loss. How are we going to do things without Jesus here with us? I know that we as Christians can get despondent Sometimes we can look at the world in all of its disorder, and right now there is plenty of that. We can look at the world and think, this is such a mess. What's the point of engaging? Let's just, let's just wait for Jesus to come back. Let's just hunker down and wait for him to return. But Jesus doesn't give the apostles or us the hour or the season when the kingdom will be fully established. They ask, and he says, it's not for you to know. He doesn't give an answer. He actually gives the apostles, he gives us here today, he gives us something better than an answer. He gives us power and a call to action. Even the angels have something to say about this after he has ascended. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you staring up into heaven? Get on with the mission. Go build the kingdom. Go tell of the gospel. Go herald the news of the king who has won a great battle. We're not supposed to wait out the clock in this life. We're to be about the business of our ascended king. He rules and reigns heaven and earth, but he has made us his viceroys on earth to build his kingdom along with him. Right here, just like Adam worked with Eve, Jesus works with us, his new Eve, in the world. We are kings and queens, princes and princesses on earth. And in his name, we are extending his dominion, but not with power or coercion, force or threat, but with fellowship, with sacrifice, acts of mercy and humility, generosity, hospitality, heralding the message of the gospel that our king has won a great battle over sin and death. Because that's the nature of our king's kingship. Jesus may not be with us physically, but because of his ascension, he lives within each of his people by his spirit. Imagine this. Jesus could have stayed here physically, but when he, as but when he ascends, he is able to be closer to all of us than anyone else will ever be. That's how personal he gets. He lives within each of his people by his spirit. He makes a home for his people and then he turns his people into a home for others. See, the ascension changes the destiny of humanity. The Christ who ascends to heaven is the Christ with a human nature 
who sits at God's right hand with that human nature. He intercedes for us in his human nature and he will come again in that human nature to place his enemies under his feet in that human nature. And we as the church are are implicated in that. We are his witnesses. So just as Christ has gone to prepare a place for us so that he might receive us, we too, as the church, his body here on earth, we prepare places in our parishes, in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives, with our time, with our wallets, with our care, with our attention. For those who don't know him, so that we might receive them and they might receive Christ. This is our mission, Sojourn. This is where the kingdom is established in our homes, around tables, in relationship, in service. We have a king. So the kingdoms of the world are in check. The church is being governed by the head who is Christ on the throne. And what that means for us today in this mission, in this endeavor, is that we can continually draw confidence from the fact that we have a faithful ascended priest who lives and pleads for us. He lives and pleads for you. We don't just take confidence in an empty cross and an empty tomb. We take confidence in the throne that is filled with Christ himself. At the very end of Revelation, John stands on the last of the Bible's mountains to see the heavenly Jerusalem descend. It's a garden city. It has rivers flowing down its golden boulevards and fruit trees on its banks. But this garden city doesn't just stay in the high place. God builds and populates a heavenly city to send it back down to earth. See, interestingly enough, even Jesus isn't going to stay in heaven forever. He will come again to unite heaven and earth in a fullness where there is no longer any distinction, no longer any separation. With all the gifts of the Spirit at our disposal by his grace, our acts of generosity, hospitality, patience, kindness, love, joy, outdoing one another in honor, putting to death all that is sinful within us, sharing the gospel and welcoming those far from the Lord into his presence and watching his dominion extend. That's the kingdom we're building. The kingdom of our king who reigns. The foundation of the church's mission, sojourn, is Christ's ascension. And one day the heavenly city will descend and and the earth will be heavenized, as it were. As kings and queens of heaven, we will rule with him together forever. Let it be so in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives that we would join this mission with Christ our King sitting confidently in the throne and we take confidence in every service that we bear, every bit of love that we give, every, every time we open our wallets, every time we serve, that kingdom is being built just a little bit more. Maybe so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that your son descended and took on our humanity, 
so that we might be lifted up to you so that we can dwell in your presence forever. Beholding your face with unveiled glory and reflecting that glory to one another and others. God, we thank you for the new and living way that Jesus has opened for us through his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension so that we might ascend your holy hill as well. And we thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit through your Son, that the Holy Spirit is taking what is Christ's and and is giving it to us. In knowing Christ through the Spirit, we can know you and we thank you for that. It's by you that our hands are made clean, our hearts are made pure, our souls are made faithful, our speech is made true. And we know that as you ascended, you have made us your ascending, reigning people. Please work in us, work in us and through us in all the world. Have mercy upon us and help us, we pray. Amen.